Welcome to the Fit for Privacy podcast with Punit Bhatia. This is the podcast for those who care about their privacy. Here, your host, Punit Bhatia, has conversations with industry leaders about their perspectives, ideas, and opinions relating to privacy, data protection, and related matters. Be aware that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are not legal advice. Let us get started. Connected cars or connected vehicles are vehicles which exchange information with systems outside of your vehicle. Well, if you have recently purchased a car and it's digital, it's likely that it is a connected car. And when it exchanges information with systems other than your car, some of that information is personal information about you. And when personal information is exchanged, privacy comes into play. What are the privacy risks? What are the privacy challenges? How do you mitigate these risks? And how do you manage these challenges? For all this and more, let's go and talk to Andrea Lisiewicz, who is a data protection lawyer, has worked with Volvo for a few years and now is working with Boeing. So let's go and ask all these questions. So here we are with Andrea. Welcome, Andrea, to Fit for Privacy podcast. Very nice to meet you. Same here. It's a pleasure to meet you. And let's start with a simple question. When you think of the GDPR, what's the one word that comes to your mind? Ah, Complicated. It's complicated. That's what comes to my mind. And that's because... It's a piece of legislation that is complex in itself and it aims to address and solve so many things. But as always, the devil is in the details. So it doesn't always work as intended. And I think in the years since it has been enforced, privacy professionals all over, not just in Europe, have seen a lot of unintended consequences. And I I do question if a lot of them have actually been taken into account when GDPR was being discussed. I honestly don't think so. And um, I struggle every once in a while with the aim of GDPR to be technology neutral. And okay, if GDPR is technology neutral, what isn't technology neutral and what does set limits for technology today? And I also struggle quite a bit with the the e-privacy directive, which is still not a regulation, which is still far behind schedule. And it probably will be for quite a while still. So yeah, complicated is what comes to mind. (laughs) Very nice. Yes, it is complicated. And I'm glad that you're also optimistic that you still keep hope that (laughs) e-privacy regulation will come through. Because some of us have started to think maybe it won't. But of course, it will. (laughs) Which form and which format, we don't know. So how did you get into this complicated life or the, if I may say in simpli- uh, simplified terms, how did you get into privacy? What's your story? When did it Well, I, I don't think I knew what I'm getting myself into in the beginning. <laughs> but uh, one thing I did know is that I liked technology mm-hmm. and I liked working with technology. I was already a lawyer for a while, maybe 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was seeing something called cloud computing starting to emerge and to be more and more present in uh, in 
well, the projects and not just everyday life. And so I started looking into it and I started seeing that uh, it doesn't really have rules of its own. However, it does fall under the data protection rules. And there are some interesting aspects there related to the controller processor uh, relationship and not only. So that's kind of how I got into it by uh, being a lawyer that also knew and understood the, part, the technology part. And um, by working with uh, with projects that had to do with implementing cloud computing, um, the first cloud computing projects at that time. I must say that would have been a very wise choice <laughs> because you know, technology or law, if you understand both things, there's no more a better combination because technology is getting almost even into business and even into law. And in GDPR, if you're a lawyer, you do need to understand technology a bit. Mm, I agree. But like I said, I didn't know that then. It just, it just happened naturally in a way. <laughs> Indeed, it happens usually. You don't have like a five-year or a 10-year plan and say you want to be a GDPR lawyer, but it happens. <laughs> and you have been a DPO or in privacy field in vehicles and these days when we talk about vehicles whether it's cars or automobiles or even the, the air, airplanes you're talking mm -hmm. about the new term called connected vehicles so let's first maybe start deciphering what is meant by connected vehicles what do we mean when we say connected cars connected vehicles well i would say that the complexity comes with connected uh, devices in general Mm -hmm. And what we witness today is that devices become connected in the wildest of areas. I honestly don't think that there are things that are not connected um, that much. I mean, we're talking about clothing being connected, um, cat litter boxes, uh, pet feeders, uh, uh, washing machines. It, it's literally everywhere, everywhere. And so not just complicated machines, but also very simple things. Um, it's a super wide range. And I think what defines them is that they bring some added value by being connected to uh, other devices, to the internet, by sensing the world around them through a series of sensors and making sense of that through some um, artificial intelligence. Um, and... Um, and yeah, the fact that you can communicate with them in some shape or form and, and program or give them uh, commands uh, through some interface. In, in the specific case of cars, I think uh, there is actually a, a more official definition nowadays of what a connected car is. But what really defines it is the fact that it um, some of its functions work by having an internet connection. Mm -hmm. uh, to a cloud service provided by the manufacturer. And so there is real-time feedback and real-time adjustment of some of the functionalities um, in the car, depending on uh, these processing capabilities, which are not locally in the car. So essentially we are saying vehicle that is connected to internet and in between its functions, at what speed it's driving, what's the tire pressure or what's going on in the car or the vehicle, that is a connected vehicle in that case. Well, what data is being collected and sent to the cloud varies from one manufacturer to another, and there isn't really a standard list. Um, it, it really depends on how they are configured. Um, but 
there are functionalities, even safety features nowadays, which happen, you know, they're called connected safety features in the sense that um, the way in which the car gives you feedback, the way in which the car adapts to the road conditions and even how it uh, knows what are the road conditions come from an internet service, which of course brings a lot of advantages, at least in theory, until things start to get spooky. Because uh, just with its normal uh, on-car, in-car sensors, the car still doesn't know what happens around the corner or in five kilometers and so on. So. There is, of course, a lot of benefit and a lot of advantages into receiving additional data beyond what can be physically observed with any device, including cars. But of course, it all boils down to the details, how these things are used, what they collect about the driving or the use of that device, in addition to pure functionalities, which bring an added value to to the user itself. So essentially, if there are no standards, that means, practically speaking, a vehicle manufacturer can collect anything, including personal data. Uh, Yes, with the added uh, mention that I don't really think there is non-personal car data. At the moment of collection from the car, I think any or all of the data needs to be considered uh, personal. And that's because even technical details about the car, about the drive, about the parts and so on, um, are connected to um, unique identifiers. And unique identifiers, even without knowing the actual, let's call it civil identity of a person, are still able to single out a certain data set. And that means personal data by the more modern uh, definition which we have today. And that's also the view that the EDPB embraced in their guideline on connected cars from, I think it was two years ago. Interesting. So if there is personal data, then it also creates privacy challenges for people and for organizations. And maybe let's get into first the organizational, do they also face some challenges? Like uh, normally if in any other DPO role, we will say, is this personal data or not? That's the debate then should we collect it or not? That's the debate. What is the basis on which we collect it? So how do you see in connected vehicles case? The privacy challenge? Well, I think one of the big challenges actually is marrying the, the requirements under GDPR and the requirements under the privacy directive and its um, transposition laws. Because when we talk about any uh, connected device, the e-privacy rules also apply. And they apply regardless of whether data is personal or not, which is one of the main differences between these two pieces of legislation. And um, from what I have seen with uh, smart devices in general, uh, the privacy rules are not really understood and are definitely not applied correctly. Because unfortunately, um, the e-privacy rules have been misunderstood and mis even interpreted as being the cookie rules. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Um, Any storage and access uh, to data on a terminal device falls under the privacy rules. And there needs to be either consent or one of the two exemptions to it, which differ from the legal basis under GDPR. And also the privacy rules are uh, special rules. So they apply with priority. And um, I think this is where a lot of both complexity and misalignment um, happens. 
And there are also uh, different rules. Let's talk about, you know, getting consent. GDPR talks about consent of the data subject, while the privacy rules talk about consent from the user. So these two people might not be the same one. So how do you make sure that you meet both requirements at the same time and at the right time, I might add? So I think that is one of the very big challenges. Then talking about specifically connected cars and um, turning to the guidance from the EDPB from 2020 on connected cars, uh, the EDPB has really overemphasized the, the role of consent in the world of connected cars, something that I don't personally understand and agree with. Um, and if someone were to take it literally, it would become a bit of a manic environment where you are asked to consent to various things pretty much all the time. Either that or, you know, to do just-in-time notices and uh, and consent requests, or you would have an onboarding journey in the car that would last a very, very long time and would completely bore you, and you wouldn't even understand at some point what you're consenting to because the request wouldn't be really connected to a feature that you're using at that time. So I really think that, you know, these these things really need to be looked at in a different framework because when we talk about devices in general and cars in particular, since they're not really different in this respect, I think that um, building a, a, a lawfulness of data processing that is uh, based on performing a contract with the with the driver, with the owner of the car and under e-privacy also there's an exemption which is, Uh, providing a service at the request of the user are the better option. But it's not really, I don't see it uh, being explored that much with smart devices in general, I would say. Yeah, because it also becomes complex from a user perspective. Let's say I go and buy a car and it is a connected device. They usually tell me, hey, you need to download this app, which would allow you to preheat and everything and everything and get the data. And I say, I don't want it. There, the consent is applicable. I can still drive the car. But yeah. in the car, the car is also collecting some data. And do you say that I bought the car, that's a contract or a consent or that's a service? It's, isn't, it, isn't it blurred? It's definitely blurred. And it's not really um, explored enough, not even you know, in by legal scholars. Um, but one thing I can say is that now we have a definition of what a, a digital service is. Um, it's in, in collateral legislation, really. But it does say that uh, whenever there is personal data being collected beyond what is strictly uh, necessary, then we have a digital service. So even having a digital account uh, and, and providing digital services in general, um, even if they're not under something called contract for, but it's something you sign up for and something that you use uh, specifically, then you actually are using a digital service by this definition. And then um, I don't really see why the exemption or the legal basis of contract couldn't really apply. I think that we really need to look a little bit further than the classical definition of contract as being a piece of paper titled contract. And, and really look at, okay, what is the intention of the rules and, and how do we make them work in today's world? That makes sense. But if I may keep on 
with the example when i buy a car i'm signing up for the car not the data behind it that is being collected isn't it i mean i'm talking a nasty user per se <laughs> Well, one of the key things there is also understanding what you buy, isn't it? That's because true. I think that if you are informed before the moment of purchase that you are buying a car with this and this and this connected functionalities, which, by the way, if you don't want, let's assume they are based on consent, if you don't want them to happen in this connected way, then you, you lose the functionality, which is a very, very important consequence, which definitely I think needs to be brought to the attention of buyers before the purchase moment, because most of the times and the more connected devices become, the more the choice is moved to the point of do I buy this or not? But in order to do that, you need to understand what exactly you are buying. And that means that all of the transparency obligations and all of all of the information about what is actually connected, what is being collected about you, what are car functionalities which won't work if you don't want this and this and this and this, um, all of that needs to happen before the purchase moment. And that's pretty difficult, especially considering that not many manufacturers do uh, direct sales. So then, you know, how to do transparency right becomes an additional challenge <laughs> mm -hmm. in this uh, ecosystem. Indeed. And that's what I meant, because when you buy a car, that is a standard product. The customization is on the physical elements, the seats, the, the steering, the wheels and so on, not on the digital aspects. Digital mm -hmm. aspects is take it or leave it. So essentially... Yes. I'm buying a car and I need to be informed. I need to be aware and accept the consequences or say I don't buy and I go to another one, but another one mm. will have more or less the same situation. Yes, exactly. And the, 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 the issue becomes even more complicated when we talk about mobility, car mobility services, like um, the new types of, uh, of rentals, even the ones very short term, like per minute or per 10 minutes and so on. And, you know, there, the link with the manufacturer is even more remote. However, the company that rents out the car has its own interests and its own data processing. And they can even have, you know, GPS location of the car and yeah. so on, which, again, if we look strictly at the wording of the ATPP guidance, location would require consent. But can that actually be taken through terms and conditions and saying, well, if you don't agree with the car being uh, tracked so that we know where it is and whether it needs gas or not, then we can't give it to you. Not really, because that's that's not consent anymore, right? No. So it becomes very complicated. And, you know, just looking at manufacturers tends to leave out an important piece of the pie, which is with other actors involved, which have other types of processing of data, but not, not uh, less important, I would say. Exactly, because I, as a business, I have subscribed to a mobility service provider who gives me a card which allows me to fuel or charge my car. And they have a service add-on which says we can allow you to track your vehicles based on GPS data so that you can locate them where they are and what speed the driver is driving. Of course, that doesn't apply to my business, but as a service, that is quite intrusive because from a business perspective, I would it like is. to track. But from an individual perspective, is he informed that he's being tracked or does he have a choice? Exactly. 
and even who should provide this information because there are a few things here if this is a service provided to your business in theory without looking a lot at the details it would make your business the controller and it would put the burden on you to inform the employees and whoever is using those cars however most of the time, this also means that even if you don't choose this functionality, the tracking still happens. It's yeah. just not provided to you. So actually, mm -hmm. the provider of the mobility service still performs that. It's still a controller, but they don't really provide that information. So it, it can get very tricky. And especially collecting location is so complicated and so potentially intrusive because it can give out such detailed information about a person's private life. And it's so, yeah, I, I would really like to avoid it as much as possible. And even, you know, what is very common uh, from what I noticed across car manufacturers is um, logging trips and, and keeping only the, the start and end point, not so much all of the location tracking in between. But even this can be very revealing, especially in the hands of someone else, which by the way, today it's quite easy to connect uh, an app to someone else's car. It's not even, you just need a little bit of physical contact with the car in general. So, you know, especially when we talk about controlling uh, partners, controlling spouses and so on, this can give way to all sorts of, of creepy consequences. And I really think that there needs to be a lot more care put into this, not to mention changes of ownership where it becomes very difficult for the previous owner to make sure, for the new owner to make sure that the previous owner has disconnected from the car and doesn't see doesn't receive new information from that car indeed and then there's also the consequence of with that data with the behavior or the type of driving you do you're creating a profile but in between the the car may be shared by two people mm. so two partners and in that case the car doesn't know it but exactly you are profiling against the person whose name is in the car or who is subscribed to the car or purchasing the car and that's an even more tricky option because then it goes to insurance because that's the next step which will happen yeah. in a few years. Insurance will come in and say, your behavior is this one. And one may be over speeding and one may not be, but the, who pays the consequences? Exactly. And also, you know, providing this data to third parties needs to be so thoroughly uh, looked at because I know that there is this temptation and the, a lot of pressure, especially from insurance companies. Oh, we just get this data and we'll see how we use it. And that's just not how <laughs> things should happen. It should definitely be under the control of uh, the person using the car. But going back to what you were saying, I think this is one of the big challenges, making sure that the data is collected about the right person and that inferences especially when we talk about predicting future, um, not so much behavior of the person, but future behavior of the car, like uh, wear and tear and, you know, all sorts of other uh, physical uh, consequences on the car and insurance, but uh, I'm not going to go there. Um, one of the, of the very important things is to do proper account management in the car. Because it needs to be, you know, the interface with the user needs to become a lot more complex, much like 
um, I think about it many times like PCs in an internet cafe 15 years ago. You know, it's very complicated if you leave someone logged in and someone else comes. Um, and, you know, this is a problem that has been solved a while ago in internet cafes. Um, but now, you know, cars are there because they are in a way a personal device, but a multi-user device. So it needs to be treated as such. And I think that without account management and without making sure that the right person is logged in and reminded, hey, is it you? Then it's basically going to be a data breach very easily. Indeed. And I think when I see the latest cars, they are having the option of personalization and profiles. But the fact is, you cannot or you don't necessarily have to create a profile to drive the car. You can say ignore. And then it's still being driven in the other profile. So there is probably a step in the direction and which will get more strengthened and more stricter as we move along. Yeah, there are there are a lot of options here, including, you know, deleting uh, the data after every driving cycle or, you know, giving it another identifier, so to say, for for a different um, for each driving cycle and so on. Mm -hmm. it, it just really takes some configuration and some thinking and being aware of all of these challenges that need to be met. In fact, that's a nice segue into what I wanted to ask. So, okay, there are challenges on consent, collection, sharing, the role, who's controller, who's processor, but how does one start to solve these challenges, especially from both the individual as well as the organizational perspective? Well, um, the obligation as, as GDPR tells us is to look at the risks that you might be um, inflicting, so to say, on the individuals, not so much on the business. So a good uh, data protection impact assessment exercise is the way to go. And of course, the starting point for um, proving accountability. And I think that it's not that difficult once you get to know the technology and how it works and what it does and what it doesn't do to place that into the um, bigger legal environment and saying, okay, this is where we are. This is what we need to be. What do we need to do? Of course, that doesn't mean all of the solutions are easy. That doesn't mean all of the solutions are viable uh, due to various reasons. Um, and that doesn't mean all of them can be uh, <laughs> acceptable to the business which is called to, to implement them. However, um, looking at the potential risks to individual, which, by the way, are not just risks to privacy. It's also risks that you know have to do with the wider uh, idea of rights and freedoms like, uh, you know, human dignity and um, other uh, affecting private life in general, which is wider than protection of personal data, of course. Um, and sometimes it can even go into, into I don't know, deprivation of liberty and uh, um, uh, overtaking someone else, stealing someone else's identity and so on. So yeah. there can be various risks, of course. It just takes skill to look at what is happening and putting it into the right frame. So basically the same solution which we advise every time in any, any situation, perform a thorough data protection impact assessment, identify the risks, propose to business and decide your way forward. 
I would add that before all of this, it's a lot of getting to know what is the technology behind what is visible, because there's a lot of temptation to just, you know, look at it from a user perspective. Okay, I interact with this button, with this button, I'm giving this option and so on. But it's usually when we talk about modern technology, it's always a lot more than this. You need to look under the hood. Interesting. Yeah. Context also matters and understanding context is where the challenge is especially for us as privacy professionals, because we know the yes. privacy bit, but the context is the business is what we need to get specialized in. Yeah. So in that case, if you had a choice, just a side question to choose between a connected vehicle, a car versus a non-connected one, which one would you prefer as a person? Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> that is a tough one. I honestly don't know. <laughs> I've thought about it many times, and I'll tell you why it's a hard choice. Mm -hmm. uh, I like the idea of being able to remain anonymous, not mm -hmm. just with cars, in general, just mm -hmm. being able to mind my own business without feeling that I'm being watched in some shape or form. However, if I am to do that, then I need to go quite a few generations of cars ago, and that means I also lose on advancements in, um, you know, assisted driving, so to say. Mm -hmm. So things that make our life easier and our driving easier and that also are more adapted to the way in which the roads and the driving happens um, today. So I'm tempted to say that I would choose a car that is not on the forefront of uh connectedness <laughs> but also not one that is totally disconnected uh so somewhere yeah. in the middle somewhere in the middle and i would definitely look at the the practices and the information that is being provided for sure yeah i think what i would probably add is it would be nice to have a private mode like you go in a browser you want to do something which you don't want to be tracked you go to private mode I don't know if that's really private, but at least you know it's more private than the other one. It's more private, exactly. Exactly. And I would add that it's very challenging to do this with rental cars. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have actually looked because I have been renting cars uh, in recent years. And um, I one of the first things that I do when I get a, a rented car is to look at whether or not they have um, profiles stored in the head unit and if they have contacts from the previous people. And I would say I would say that the number of times when the answer was yes is over 90%, unfortunately. Mm. And I think that it's a shared responsibility there because yes, in theory, the, the rental company should be cleaning this, should be doing, should be, should be, should be. However, we can't deny that we as users also have responsibilities and that no one will protect our privacy better than we do ourselves. So I'm, I'm while being one of the first people to say that privacy by design and good practices and good features and good choices by manufacturers, sellers, whatever are key, I will also say that, that we definitely are in a period of, I don't know what it is, fatigue, uh, not enough patience or whatever, but people also don't do usually as much as they could do to take care that their privacy is preserved. Yeah, I think the onus is on both sides. We as individuals need to be mindful of where we are sharing data, what we are doing and understanding what we are signing up to. 
But again, organizations also have to be ethical more than lawful. And that's where exactly it is more complex because law, you can still put some boundaries, even though that's un uh, that's sometimes challenging. But ethics is far more open and wide subject as uh, it, de it depends on the many factors, including the demographic. Yes, and also it adds uh, another layer, which is counterfactual explanations. Transparency under GDPR requires you to say what you do under some elements. It doesn't require you to say what you don't do, but many times saying what doesn't happen, what is not collected, what is not done in a certain mm -hmm. way is very useful. And I think that the smarter the device is and also the more divergent a certain device from its industry, it becomes even more important to say, we don't do this. That would be interesting, but I don't think people will like it because that's more difficult to do what you don't do. <laughs> I think that, uh, well, Apple does it, for example, yeah. and building a brand out of protecting privacy might be something to uh, be supported with. We don't do X, Y, Z. And, I, and that's not an endorsement of, of Apple or something. I'm just saying that it can actually happen and it can support a positioning of a certain brand. Absolutely. I think leveraging privacy for brand positioning is the way to go. Of course, it's picking up with a few handful of companies doing it. And it will be more and more as we go along because you just cannot say I'm compliant with GDPR, CCPA, CPRA and so on. Rather, the brand differentiation will be this is what we do. This is what we don't do with your data. While it has been a fascinating conversation, maybe a moment for you to also share what you do, who you are, and how can people get in touch with you? Because you have a lot of wisdom, a lot of wisdom, a lot of perspective on data privacy, and maybe somebody wants to talk to you, get you on a speaking engagement or whatever. <laughs> Well, what I do is that I uh, work in-house. Nowadays, I'm, I work at Boeing. I am still based in, uh, in Sweden, where I have been for uh, quite a few years now. And the way in which people can reach me is uh, the easiest is on LinkedIn, where I'm quite uh, present and active. And um, yeah, I do a lot of speaking engagements. So <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't be uh, very, very different from what's already happening. Absolutely. I think uh, you are one of the few privacy professionals, including me also, who are sharing a lot of voluntary personal information to be. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but in a controlled manner, hopefully. In a controlled <laughs> manner, indeed. Yes. So, Andrea, thank you so much for being with us and sharing these wonderful thoughts about connected devices, connected cars. It's wonderful to have you and thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been my pleasure. Fit for Privacy helps you to create a culture of privacy and manage risks by creating, defining, and implementing a privacy strategy that includes delivering scenario-based training for your staff. We also help those who are looking to get certified in CIPPE, CIPM, and CIPT through on-demand courses that help you prepare and practice for certification exam. Want to know more? Visit www.fitforprivacy.com. That's www.fit4privacy.com. Thanks for listening. If you liked the show, 
feel free to share it with a friend and write a review. If you have already done so, thank you so much. And if you did not like the show, don't bother and forget about it. Take care and stay safe. Until next time, goodbye. If you have questions or suggestions, feel free to drop an email at hello at fitforprivacy.com. That's hello at F-I-T, the number four, privacy.com.